You're listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have called us your children and adopted us as inheritors of your grace through the blood of your faithful Son. Thank you that we can come to you with any need and that others can come to you on our behalf when we don't have the words necessary or we don't know what it is that we need. As we read your word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would shine a light on this text so that we would be rightly seen who you are, and that we would humbly know your faithfulness. We pray that your kingdom would shine through, Heavenly Father, as you give us your Holy Spirit, so that by your grace we believe your holy word and live lives shaped by Jesus here and now and with you in eternity. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we've been walking through a couple of passages in the Gospel of Mark and connecting it to the disciple's life. A disciple being one who follows and is taught by someone. A Christian is a person who knows that Jesus is their Savior, and that he has forgiven their sins by his blood being shed for them on the cross. A Christian, then, is made a disciple when they are called into that right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Hold on. Who or what do we follow? Well, we follow Jesus. We follow the way of Jesus. Now, that can sound kind of cool, <laughs> but it's also a little bit abstract. It sounds like words put together without a whole lot of meaning. The first disciples literally followed Jesus. They followed in his footsteps. They were taught by his direct words from his mouth. How in the world would we do something like that today? Throughout the New Testament, we have descriptions of how it is that we should love God and love our neighbor. And then we also read specific expectations that are placed upon us as disciples. Um, expectations that are put on us in response to what Jesus has done for us. As we follow Christ and are obedient to the calls that he places on our lives, we will be slogging through the trenches and the mess of life that James described for us this morning in our readings. Two weeks ago, we heard from God's word about how we become disciples. And last week, we looked at lives, we looked at our lives as disciples on the road, as pilgrims and refugees. But now, Let's say that you are a pilgrim, a refugee, and there's danger on the road. You have no choice but to jump into the gutter, the trenches on either side of the road. A month ago, we talked about spiritual warfare. The danger is real. The danger is waiting for you. There is no escaping the danger. So what are we going to do about it? This week, we need to be reminded that we are not doing this alone. We're not walking this path alone. We are not individual disciples, individual pilgrims or refugees stranded. And here's our big idea. 
Jesus has saved you to follow him. The way is full of danger, but you are not alone. And here's our text for this week. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one, with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him, in the, taking him the child that is in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I love here at the very beginning of this text, in verse 30 and 31, Jesus says that he doesn't want anyone to know that they're traveling or where they're going because he wants a time to teach his disciples. He wants a set-aside time to tell them what it is that they need to know as his disciples. <laughs> but we see that the whole story takes a very different kind of turn. Now, we've all made the mistake here that the disciples have made. You know, someone's trying to teach us something or tell us something, maybe give us directions, uh, and we miss the point. We don't hear what it is that we need. We misunderstand. And then, when the time comes to use the information or act upon what it is that we were taught, all of a sudden, we're lost. Now, husbands and sons who are listening, you know exactly what I mean. Your wife or mother or other woman in your life at some point was speaking to you and you were listening, but when a question come up, comes up, you suddenly realize that she was speaking a different dialect, some sort of womanly language that you don't know. And if you ask her what she said, then it will be clear to everyone that you were not listening, though we both know that's not the case. However, you are, in fact, stuck. And to you ladies who have received that confused look from a boy or man, be gracious. We've never had a chance to work on the level that you're working at. <laughs> well, the problem here is similar. There's a disconnect between what Jesus is saying and what the twelve disciples are hearing. Something blocking their ears from really hearing. Perhaps they do not want to believe that their teacher, uh, their friend, is going to die. And they are certainly confused by him being raised from the dead. W when is that going to happen? On the last day? At the resurrection? But perhaps more than these things, you will, you will remember from last week when they failed to cast out a demon. They are now in their own way. They are thinking that since they could not cast out a demon, since they seem to have lost some sort of authority that was given to them by Jesus, since they think 
that maybe they're being left behind by Jesus. They are actually allowing their own importance or what they think is their own importance to get in the way of hearing Jesus properly. And what is the only thing that you and I can do when we lose self-confidence? Obviously, compare ourselves to others. Instead of walking and chatting to discover what Jesus was teaching them, the disciples decide this journey would be a good time to discuss who is the most important and capable among them. When Jesus asked them about it, they are embarrassed, as they should have been, as we should be when we try to justify ourselves by the actions of others. Jesus then lays down a firm standard for us. If you really want to be the greatest disciple, then you had better start considering yourself better than no one and a servant to everyone. This is not a way of thinking. It's not a way of feeling. Jesus is actually telling you that you need to be ready to serve your neighbor no matter who they are at any time. But how? Well, one of the cool things that we see here, and we see it all over the Gospels, is that children are always nearby when Jesus is teaching. I don't know why there's always kids nearby. Yes, they run to him. They love him. <laughs> maybe he's just kind to them. Or maybe there's just a lot of bored children. I don't know. <laughs> but here, Jesus grabs one of them to use as an illustration. And he says that unless we are willing to see this needy, snot-nosed little child who has no economic value or cultural importance as being invaluable because they are worthy of being served, then we are missing just how not great we are. And not only that, but we are missing how lowly Jesus made himself to save someone as low down as you and me. Perhaps it feels a little bit strange to you that Jesus would use a child in this illustration, What's wrong with this child? Is it a street child? Does it not um, have a family? What's going on here? No, it's not that this child was any less than another child. But by and large, children are somewhat valued in our world today. However, back in Jesus' day, children, although valuable, were valuable in a different way. Because they were essentially slaves until they would grow up and leave the home. And and so, unless you are willing to serve a servant, then you are viewing yourself more highly than you ought to view yourself. So you are welcome to put into this illustration anyone that you would think of in this world as being less than. Someone that is other, whether it be a foreigner or a homeless person or whoever you want to use a tone of voice about that lets everyone know that person is not very valuable. For Jesus here and the disciples, it was a child who was close by, and it was a child who held little value, and yet it was a child that they should be willing to serve. Now, we already read the passage, and we see Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection. This is actually the second time out of three times that Jesus does this in the Gospel of Mark. He did it in chapter 8, we'll read that in just a second, and then he also does it again in chapter 10. 
But just so that we're on the same page, you've actually already confessed this morning the beauty of what it is that Jesus did on the cross. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God lifted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We also see Jesus teaching something very similar to his disciples in chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, that is, he said it so they could understand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For it does not profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. What does a cross do? If you are really supposed to pick up your cross daily and carry it, what is it going to do to you? A cross is an instrument of death. And so what is the focus here that Jesus is, is pointing us to? It's dying to self, giving up selfish self-interest for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ and your neighbor. Now, don't be confused by this cross-bearing language. Uh, bearing your cross is not some level of suffering that you need to have before you are accepted by Jesus. You must carry your cross and die to self for those around you, uh, for those that need to be cared for and served. And this flies in the face of everything that the world says makes you great. Jesus is saying what makes you great is loving and serving others, giving up yourself to others for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. There's something here that Jesus is trying to tell us. <laughs> and it is that the way that he goes to the cross for us, the way that he saves us, the way that he serves us is instructive to us about the way that we serve others. We are made and meant to lay down our lives for others. One of the ways that we say this at church quite often, especially when we're talking about good works, is that Jesus does not need your good works, although God does lay them out in front of you to walk in. It's your neighbor that needs your good works. You're not saved by good works. You're not saved by your service. You're not saved by any sort of sacrifice that you produce, but you are saved to something, to a mission, if you will. And that mission includes service. That mission includes 
sacrifice. And that mission includes doing good to and for others. Now, how does all of this tie into discipleship? Well, obviously, Jesus is teaching his disciples these things. But what about you and me? How does this tie into the way that Anchored Baptist Church works? The way that we interact with each other? Well, there are many ways that we have been called to take up our cross. Many ways that we have been called to lay down our lives. And in fact, God has actually put us in a place to do that. Jesus gathers his disciples. He's given us a place to gather and a people to gather with. We have been called to love and serve one another as a church family. Called to place others before ourselves and to carry one another's burdens. Now, if you'll remember, our big idea for today is this. Jesus has saved you to follow him. The way is full of danger, but you are not alone. Almost always when I use that language, you are not alone. I mean that Jesus is right there, present with you, present with us. But today, what I mean by that is we have each other. Whether you feel like a pilgrim on the path or a refugee straggling along the road, ready to dive into the ditch at any second, you're not alone on that road. You are not walking alone on that path. There are others walking alongside you, and we are following Jesus together. One of the ways that this is expressed to us, especially in the epistles or the letters of the New Testament, is by Paul, Peter, and other writers talking about how we are to care for one another, how we are to interact with and respect one another. Let me just run off a, a little list of one another's from Scripture. We are called to be at peace with one another, to not grumble with one another, to be of the same mind, to accept one another, to not boast towards one another, to be gentle and patiently bear with one another, to be kind and tender-hearted with one another, to confess our sins, to love and to serve, to tolerate, <laughs> to greet with love, to be devoted to, to give preference to, give honor to, to be subject to one another, to not judge one another. And clearly there's a good way of judging and a bad way of judging, but to not judge one another, to bear one another's burdens, to speak truth to one another, to pray for one another and be hospitable to one another. There are 47 different versions of these one another's given to the church in the New Testament letters. But if you will, allow me just to use one verse as an example here in the way that it ties into this Mark passage, uh, Mark chapter 9 and chapter 8. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is Paul calling us to forgive as Christ has forgiven. When we are riding these waves of COVID <laughs> in and out of church, 
affected by it in all kinds of ways, directly and indirectly. We do have to start asking ourselves questions about how we can best serve and love one another, despite the fact that it seems like we are constantly pulled away from one another. I don't have all the answers for this. I'm not sure that any one of us has all the answers for this. However, I do know that God has called us together as a church body. He's actually made us each disciples to be traveling along this road of, of following Christ into our forever home together. And so, when we think about these one another's of Scripture, we need to think about it in light of how it is that we can humble ourselves and what it is that those around us need. Because make no mistake about it, we are in the trenches of this life. I keep on using that word in case you don't you don't know, sorry. Uh, a trench is a hole that you dig and you hide in in the middle of war so that you don't get blown up or shot to pieces, okay? And so we are in the trenches right now as we speak. And we are in need of one another. We are in need of knowing that the person that we sit beside on a Sunday that we read these messages with, that we listen to these sermons with, has our back and that we can trust them. And God, the Holy Spirit, through the writing of God's word, has actually given us the equipment that we need in order to make sure that we are loving and serving and trusting one another as we are in the trenches battling through this life of discipleship. I sent out a little graphic to you all with some of those one another's. Uh, each bubble that you'll see on that graphic is the amount at which that one another is used in the text of Scripture. So the bigger the bubble, the more that it's used. I would encourage you to have a look at that. Look up some of the passages that are on that little graphic. And as you read the text of Scripture, which I hope that you are doing, as you see those one another's, that you will make a point of implementing that in your Christian life, in your walk. Because that's one of the primary ways that Jesus has given us to follow him as a church body. As we do that, though, we know that it's not in our own strength that it will be done. Jesus has actually saved you and I in order to follow him. He went to the cross. He was delivered into the hands of men and killed by them. And then, after he was killed, three days after, he rose from the dead, and he did all of that for you and for me. It is not by our own strength or our own reason that we can be saved, and it is not by our own strength or any reasoning within us, that we can selflessly love and serve others. We actually need to share in the mind of Christ in order to do that and to do it well. And I think that we will do that when we understand that the way that we walk, <laughs> this path that we follow as disciples is full of danger. But we are not alone. And there are others around us that need us, and we need them. This is a convicting word to me. 
And in the midst of that conviction, there's one thing that I need each of us to know. In the midst of all of our selfish ways, Jesus looks at us and he says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven because I did not think equality with God is something to cling to. Instead, I gave up my divine privileges and I took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And in being like you, I humbled myself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God lifted me up to the place of highest honor and gave me the name that is above all other names, that at my name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that I, Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has saved you to follow him. The way is full of danger, but you are not alone. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.